0: Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history.
1: Please visit our website at
0: hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com
1: and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Hidden History Happy Hour with me, Brian and Alex Dean. And today we have a fantastic special guest. You might be forgiven after this episode, if you conclude that our name should be Hidden History of Obscure Lake Battles Happy Hour, but it's not. This is just such an amazing story. And we have such a great storyteller. We had to do it. Alex, over to you. My friend, Willard Foxton, I've known Willard
1: Foxton Todd, excuse me, your married name, I've known for over 20 years one of my favorite facts about Willard is that in making a a, a, a TV show about 28 dates on 28 different dating sites he met his wife (laughs) and I have always wanted to ask Willard uh, first of all welcome to the show and second of all did you meet her on date 28 or did you have to keep going on other dates and explain to this girl that you really (laughs) liked that you were just doing it for, for professional reasons?
2: So I met her on a I met her about date 24. So it was towards the end. there was definitely like a point where like she wanted to go exclusive. And I was like, but I have to finish the blog, (laughs) right? Like so art comes first.
0: Art comes first. Art before love. Well, listeners, as you know, here at the Hidden History Happy Hour, we not only inform and entertain, we also try to help with your imbibing pleasures, of course, in a safe way. And as we've worked through the show, we've decided it's a good idea to offer our special guests the ability to choose the particular beverage of that show. So Willard, what are we drinking today?
2: I think we should definitely be drinking Lamb's Navy rum. Uh, That's is-
1: exactly what I've got. <laughs> it's, exactly, it's exactly what I've got in front of me.
2: It's the, the classic rum of uh, British wardrooms throughout the First and Second World War. Uh, I personally, yeah, yeah. not particularly classic, drinking mine with Coke at the moment, which I think any Jack Tar would be appalled by,
0: but there you go. Quite right. But we know it's late there. yeah it's late it's late for us but i'm
1: having the classic dark rum none of your white rum for me hey so Uh, i have
0: to ask you a question that i asked alex uh on an earlier episode and he to be honest didn't really know the answer when do you think the practice of issuing british navy officers a rum ration ended
2: it's very late it's very late indeed i have a that was my photo. answer i have a i've a wonderful photo of a of, a, of an admiral um, this i did a lot of filming on the on the british aircraft carrier obviously um, as part of top gun because uh, we were filming brit's going to top gun so i have a wonderful photo of a british admiral drinking rum from the barrel um, which must have been taken in <laughs> i believe the early 90s so i i would well, say after the pretty, falklands Yes, yeah, so I think it's after the Falklands. I think it's early nineties, if I had to
1: guess. Ah, uh, so the dispute that we were having, and maybe you've done some sneaky research to prove me wrong, Brian. But my point was that it was issued at special occasions until very, very recently. It may even still be, but but the daily tots of rum that we were discussing that that went before the Falklands. That was the dispute we were having.
2: Oh well, I, I know for a fact that the Queen Elizabeth, certainly I don't know about the Prince of Wales, the other carrier, but I know the, <laughs> the Queen Elizabeth has a pub on board. So you can certainly pop down for a rum anytime you fancy it, which of course American sailors are hugely jealous of because the US Navy is still completely dry. Um completely dry to the point where if you're served a beer on an American, because they do have beer for special occasions. Um, so, like, if you're is presence Day, I think you you get like one beer per crewman, but they open all the beers before they issue them because otherwise people would hoard them. And so, the the U.S. Navy is still like by and large dry, uh, which I think is a good grief. In
0: um, in against the spirit, the whole I, thing. I cannot, as an American in good conscience, defend that practice. I just can't. So, Willard, I've actually taken a look at your impressive filmography and uh, might be a little bit too soon, but I just want to ask you, I assume your production of kinky Britain doesn't have anything to do with your dating experience.
2: Well, I mean, you would be surprised. I mean, I think my possibly one of my favorite bits of that dating experience was when a vicar in the church of England sent me a message asking me whether uh, as part of a dating experience, I would like to go to her house and she would lock me in a cage and then whip me while her husband weed on me uh, through a rubber tube and then the best thing about that was not she was so polite because she she ended the message with do you let me know if that would be your cup of tea? And I was like... <laughs> so to speak.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, was, Not my cup of
2: tea, but there you go. There, yeah. there,
1: there goes our clean rating. We may Absolutely. be bleeping some of that out for the benefit <laughs> of our extended audience, but on cleaner cleaner topics that Winard covered, I assume, uh, Inside Obama's White House is one of your uh, success stories. And I know that Inside Top Gun uh was a great connect and very timely too because they're remaking it right well, they, they uh, have absolutely it.
2: well they've just done top gun too and i think uh, i think we were in the pitch for inside top gun we told them that we would definitely be coming out at the same time as the tom cruise movie but we obviously got things done a lot faster than uh, than hollywood so can't complain too much about that but yeah it was fascinating it was a great experience filming at the uh, navy fighter weapons school um and that was absolutely bonkers i think my favorite one of my favorite moments in doing that was um commissioner for the british broadcaster who commissioned it before i got on the plane he took me to one side and he went willard i want you to promise me that you will get an american flight instructor standing in front of a jet and he they turn the jet engine on and i want the american to say hear that that's the sound of freedom
0: <laughs> <laughs> well uh, willard uh two two little bits of trivia one is as i sit here right now i'm about 35 miles from Miramar, so I will especially be looking forward to the release of the film, and I hope we'll be able to put on our website some places where people in North America can see it. Back to your earlier point, which I know we don't want to delve too deeply into, but as our listeners know, my father was actually a minister in the American branch of the, of the Church of England, the American Episcopal Church, and I'm also put in, in, in memory of a Limerick, which I will simply start And not finish that says there once was a bishop from Birmingham. Yes, I know the rest of that, and people
1: can look that up if they would like to. Um, I, um, as, as you know, Willard, uh, this podcast is based on a book that I wrote. And uh, after I finished the book, I kept telling stories online um, uh, in my Dean History series. And I told a Miramar story, as a matter of fact. Um, I told stories of two ex- incredibly expensive fighter jets that were trashed one after another by pilots who were trying to wiggle out of their um trousers to have a pee uh mid-flight and one of them was going back going back to miramar's multi-million dollar expense caused by pilots um ejector seating after getting their gear stick stuck no pun intended uh this is the smuttiest episode we've ever recorded (laughs) it really is some way
0: (laughs) it really is talking about pulling the escape hatch alex (laughs) yeah okay all right i'm gonna tell a story
1: if it kills me um i am now going to tell the story of Paul von Leto Vorbeck, uh, the Lion of Africa. Um, Leto uh, Warbeck survived, spoiler, survived the First World War, um, and in his memoirs gave us some glimpses of his, his life before it as a professional soldier in the German military, the great Prussian machine uh, of before the First World War. Uh, he, in it, apart from other things, um, recalls his memories of von Moltke, uh, the military strategist who was famously supposed to have laughed only twice in his life, um, once when told that a particular French fortress was absolutely impregnable, and the other when he was informed that his mother-in-law had died. Um, anyway, uh, so um, Leto Vorbeck served under him and was posted to um, German Southeast Africa, which is now, uh, excuse me, Southwest Africa, which is now uh, Namibia at the start of the 20th century. He was a man of some real personal bravery. He, he lost an eye there in the course of, of, of battle. And it was that, a lot of that fighting that taught him what we now call guerrilla warfare. Anyway, when the First World War came, he was commanding German forces in East Africa. And uh, his force of this force was called Schutztruppe, And that force was tiny, you know, 5,000 men, half German volunteers and, non, and non-commissioned officers, half indigenous troops, and they, they were called Askaris. And there was, uh, my first question for you guys, there was talk of African colonies being declared neutral in the conflict in the First World War because in the 19th century, the great powers had contemplated and even not quite negotiated, but discussed colonies remaining inviolate and neutral during German conflicts. I wonder if you guys knew that.
0: I was really interested to read that in the story, Alex, and it kind of led me to the question, of sort of why bother right so it's clear right. in the story that 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 his, uh, despite all of his heroics everything that happened in africa was more or less a sideshow and if that's the case throughout the colonies you might say why bother why not concentrate the forces where the fight is i guess you, everyone's trying to circle win, a flank right? and get the advantage right did you know that one we
2: I had no idea. I I did not know that they discussed that sort of thing. I, it's my it's such of, a
1: weird idea, isn't
2: it? My sort of understanding of Africa kind of finishes about, uh, it, it, you know, the history of Africa kind of starts in the sort of, you know, the sort of 1700s and goes to about, you know, the sort of end of the Belgian regime in the Congo. Because I've read Adam Hochschild's right. book about the Belgian Congo, which covers a lot of that, but then doesn't. Really pick up again until about nineteen fourteen. So I think I probably missed that crucial period between about eighteen ninety eight about 1898 and nineteen
1: fourteen, where right it happened. But I didn't. Know. Well, of course, the the um the Belgians were famously appalling uh, colonial masters. Anyway, so the point is, uh, this was mooted that his territory might be neutral, and, and Leto Vorbeck was having none of that. Instead, he battled the Allies with his starting force of five thousand wherever he could find them. He fought the British, he fought the Belgians, he fought the Indians, he fought the Portuguese, forces much, much larger than his own. He fought, fought the lot. Pitched battles like the Battle of Tanga, uh, which, which was a defensive battle for a German territory that they held, and the Battle of Jacin, where he attacked and, and defeated a British force. British force surrendered to him, he, uh, the commanding officer was killed, but the, the people who were left in charge were ushered into his presence. He congratulated them warmly on their excellent defence of, of Jasin and then released them on, on, their, own recogn- on their own recognizance, to, on their promise to uh, play no further part in the war. I suppose that he also didn't really want to burden himself with a lot of prisoners of war. But um, I thought that was interesting that, you know, as a man of honour, he would just take someone's word that they would play no further part in the conflict and then let them go. He mounted raids into British colonial territory in what's now Kenya and now Uganda. Uh, He had a scuttle ship, took naval guns off it and used them in the field. And so all these kind of stories of his hero- heroics grew, grew and, and his forces grew as a result, To at its height, 14,000 fighting men, as men in the region were drawn to this strong man who, who spoke to them in his fluent Swahili, and they came to fight, really, not for imperial Germany, they came to fight for Leto Vorbeck. And as you were implying, Brian, when we were discussing the field of war, he knew that his theater would never be central to the conflict's outcome. His aim was to make the Allies commit as many troops as possible to the fight against him, and thus depriving them
0: of resources. Question about Um, that, Alex. On the front. Yeah, go ahead. So we've talked before in the context of both the uh, War of 1812 and, frankly, Hamilton, about the need by Men, particularly in those days, but people to show their glory, show their honor, demonstrate that they're in the fight. And I wonder how much you think, in his case, it was, I will defend Germany at all costs versus I love to have war, and I want glory and I want to fight.
1: Well, of course, there's a, in every professional soldier, I think there's a, a sense of, of, of pride in doing one's best and in, in serving the force of arms as best one can, but um, as a career, as a profession. Uh, but I think too, that in those circumstances, he, he felt that every bit he was able to draw away from the Allies was helping mother Germany um, all, all the more. So I suppose my answer, my fatherland rather, so I suppose my answer is both. Um, The point is, as time went on, uh, whilst he continued to accumulate victories, circumstances naturally were were harder and harder for Leto Vorbeck. Uh, Always facing superior numbers, deprived of support and material from from Germany because the British were successfully blockading. His men fought on using the weapons they captured from those that they defeated. Uh, So um, supplies dwindled, rations were cut. They still fought on. In other environments like that, certainly the colonial subjects would have deserted the banner, right? What did they owe to far off Germany? But the Ascaris under Leto Warbeck did not because they fought for him. Um, Anyway, towards its conclusion of the war, one interesting thing, Leto Vorbeck was the only person to take British towns, the only German to successfully capture British settlements in the entire conflict. Secondly, Leto Vorbeck remained undefeated at the end of the war. He surrendered after the armistice, because it took so long for the news to get to to Africa, uh, by agreement, and he surrendered on his own terms in a place of his own naming. And indeed, because of the time that it took for that, that, that message to get there, he and his men were the last men fighting the First World War, and they fired its last shots well after the armistice. And when they finally surrendered, we, the British, wryly realized that the men we captured were armed only and solely with weaponry they'd taken from us, with weaponry they'd taken from the forces they defeated. I'm going to say one more thing about this, then I'm going to shut up and see what you think about it. When, because this is how things were done in the colonies at the time, the Germans were separated out from the Asgharis, their... their uh colonial uh soldiers Um, when leto vorbeck was separated out in the prisoner of war camp from the askaris he had led throughout this conflict his african askaris formed up into ranks in the prison camp and cried out and begged the british to be allowed to follow him and they didn't know where he was going they just begged to be able to follow uh, the man that they that they ha- had followed and loved and i thought that was you don't often get stories about german heroism in, in either of the, the the great wars and certainly in this uh, forgotten area of colonial conflict it was a story i thought that deserved to be told
0: yeah that is it, that is dedication so
2: can i round off that story with yeah. a great little sort of anecdote that i know from having having um done quite a few films out there um, so in the 1950s, uh, it became apparent that effectively the Germans owed pensions to all of those askaris uh, wow. and they decided they were going to pay them. But of course, so they went out and they tried to find all the askaris, but of course the askaris didn't have any of their pay books. They, you know, they'd been right. following Leto Vorbeck through like swamps and jungles and Uh, And so on. So they had no paybooks, they had no uniforms, they'd been using captured equipment. So they had no way of proving who had been an Askari and who had not. And so the German civil servant who went out there to to find these Askaris, he came up with a very simple system. He said, essentially, if you were one of Von Leto Vorbeck's um, Askaris, you can come to my office, and I've got a Mauser rifle in my office, and if you can perform the 1914 Schuttstrup <laughs> and Manual of Arms in my office, you'll get a pension from the German government. And, f- and hundreds of old men came and got their pension from I think the sounds Dominican. amazing.
1: Well, our, what a, I promise our listeners that was not set up. I think that is fantastic. Yeah, and, uh, that's let me crazy. We me didn't give, know that. Give you a, I didn't know that. Let me give you a PS that I think is also great. After the war, Leto uh, Vorbeck goes back to Germany and he tries to go into politics. But of course after a time, um, the fates were against him because he was not in favour of the rise of Hitler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and indeed, you know, Hitler wanted this war hero, this man who's looked up to on his side. And... Um, Here goes our clean rating. Uh, Leto Vorbeck, when being offered uh, an important ambassadorship by the Fuhrer, told Hitler to go fuck himself. (laughs) And I think that is a great mark uh, of the man. Nevertheless, of course, he lost his sons and his son-in-law all died in fighting for Germany in the Second World War. Mm. And I think that to the last Leto Vorbeck, for all the faults of imperial Germany, of course, he remained an example of the different history that his country and its people could have had but for nazism
0: yeah it's a tragedy all around i wonder alex does history record well first of all at what at what what year what time period was it when he rejected hitler was it early on Uh, it was was in the in the
1: 30s so i think when hitler was chancellor but before full-blown
0: insanity so does history record what he felt was so much worse about Nazism at that time than Kaiserism that made him reject. The- oh, than just militarism. Well, he certainly wasn't a fascist.
1: He wasn't a fascist. He wasn't a Nazi. He didn't believe in, as far as I, as far as I know, and all that I've read about him, he's had no sympathy with um, the treatment of the Jews or, uh, or or other minorities in the way that the, the Fuhrer wished to. And I also think, as many soldiers. um Uh, did, that he, he thought that further militarism on the European continent at that time was a very bad idea for Germany. Mm -hmm. No matter how much you resented Versailles, the notion of another land war was one opposed almost most of all by those who'd fought the last one. Right. And there were plenty of people banging drums and saying, you know, the militarism and restore German pride. Plenty of the the, the older generation of the Junkers and the the Prussian uh, officers uh, were, were many of them were reluctant. And of course, that's where some of the. Uh, failed admittedly failed hopes of a coup against Hitler came from that older officer class who in the end bottled it but at least to their partial credit didn't back Hitler in a way uh, that many others did.
0: Well uh, Alex as the comedians say you've uh, successfully wall-to-walled our conversation because as we know Tom Cruise, Maverick and Top Gun also one of the key German assassin attempted assassins of Hitler in (laughs) Valkyrie. So way to tie that together more seriously. And I, I, I'm curious, Willard Willard, to your thoughts and how this fits into your story, if at all, this kind of gets us to a theme that that's come up many times so far in our podcast, which is to what extent are professional soldiers tainted by the evilness Or the oppressiveness of the cause of the leaders of the country they fight Mm. for. And I wonder if you can forgive a German soldier in the First World War in a way that you wouldn't in the Second World War. Does it depend on how much they knew at the time? Does the fact that you swore an oath to defend your country defeat all? How, How do you feel about that?
2: I think it's a very difficult question and I think ultimately like you can read about people who fought for these totalitarian states um you know I'm a huge fan of um I don't know if you've ever read Robert Forzik's books on the eastern front as a, a tank colonel American tank colonel um mm. and he wrote two, he's written two brilliant books on the eastern front and they're kind of you know I sort of hugely find myself drawn to and respecting the kind of toughness of the Soviet troops out there and and, you know, and, and thinking about sort of what people were doing out there on the Eastern Front and so on and so, so forth, it's very difficult to pare that out from the horror of the regimes that are engaged mm. in that combat. And I think, I suppose there's a part of me, uh, so sort of, I'm you know, kind of heavily engaged in the world of um, model soldiers and, and things like, you know, reenactment and things like I don't do any reenactment. Mm. But there's always a part of me that, like, when you meet people who are reenactors in particular, There's there's, like, some people who who were in it for a f- bit of fun. And there are some people who like dressing up in Nazi uniforms a bit too much, you know, and I think
0: right. it, it, <laughs> we have, we don't have any of those people in the United States, but
2: <laughs> of course not. Of course not.
0: I, so, can I, I, I'll just give you what I'm going to get. We'll have to tell his story, but I'll tell
1: you one thing that I thought was interesting uh, from your question, Brian, about whether you would condemn the behavior of somebody serving one regime when you wouldn't the other. Um, I told the, the story um About um, a great British um, hero uh, called Yeo Thomas, uh, Wing Commander Forrest Yeo Thomas, who won the Military Cross during his um, efforts to help the French resistance. After the war was finished, after the second World war was finished, he was a key witness at the Nuremberg trials uh, because he'd been imprisoned at Buchenwald. But he was also a key witness at the uh, trial of a German opposite number of his in the Waffen-SS, Otto Skorsensky, Skorsensky. And Scorsenzi was accused of, um, of a war crime by wearing US uniforms behind Allied lines. And Gabe Thomas said, we did the same thing. We wore German uniforms behind enemy lines uh, in a, during the course of our operations, and he led to the acquittal of, um, of the soldier who, who was on trial. And I thought that was admirable, uh, not least because Victor's justice can't extend to condemning someone for doing precisely the same thing that you did, of.
0: Well, unless on your side it was done by rogue soldiers against and it was doctored. But let's just just suppress this point a little bit more. And I I can't wait to hear Willard's story. If anyone has not been to the museum in Berlin of the Berlin wall, which is not exactly what it's called, but that's what it is. There's a great exhibit about the East German soldiers on the wall during the Cold War. Alex, I won't say the height of the Cold War during various points in the Cold (laughs) War who deliberately held their fire right. while people ran across the no-man's land into West Germany. So I wonder, do we count those soldiers as more heroic than soldiers who followed orders? You'd think so, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Maybe, especially
0: because uh, it could be someone you know, right? But anyway, sorry, go on Willard.
2: I was going to say, uh, something I've, i that really sort of stuck with me reading Anne Applebaum's brilliant book about the Gulag, which is just called Gulag, um was the, was the fact that um, there are quite a lot of people who resist totalitarian regimes, but they often resist them with no sort of like heroic intent. They are just kind of awkward yes. people. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're like awkward, difficult people who often would resist a, a democratic regime. And it's right. it's really fascinating in that book. It talks about like the sort of things people are in the gulag for, a sort of very basic act of resistance where all they would have to have done was you know, comply to an extent I think almost anyone else would have done because they're sort of so awkward and they just won't be pushed around. They go, well, fuck you and and end up in, you know, spending decades kind of right. in these horrific camps and things like that. So, so there's a part of me that feels like those acts of resistance to tyranny in those situations like East Germany, like they will have known when they didn't pull the trigger that they and probably their families were going to have an absolutely appalling time. And I think it is quite a heroic decision to say, yes, I'm not going to kill that person.
0: So I I think the Willard-Foxton heroism equation is, heroism minus previous tendency to be an asshole anyway <laughs> well so that's mary lindell who's
1: one of the british uh uh partners of the french resistance uh her brother after uh, the war said that she'd only been so awkward to the gestapo because she was so awkward with everybody it's <laughs> <So, laughs> <laughs> so reinforcing your your point Willa. right so will are I- we going to
2: oh i have going to run over time i was about to share an, an anecdote from my grandfather about do, it, do, it, do it so my grandfather was a fighter pilot during the second world war and he uh it was a fleet air arm which is our sort of equivalent of the naval aviators in the us so we're back to the round again on the top gun top marks for our kind of set up and payoffs here right. but he, he was a naval aviator in the second world war and he but during the battle of britain they were very short of aviators so they had to pull in guys who had any sort of fighter training so he flew in the battle of britain he did fly with douglas bader but absolutely detested Mm. douglas bader because he was an absolute shit um but the the (laughs) this is not the conventional history i love it (laughs) no no one of the key things i think about people like that though is if you were a kind of mild mannered person who didn't, who was not a really difficult individual, there is absolutely no way you would be the sort of person who could have both your legs cut off in a flying accident and have the determination to be like, I'm going to get back in a plane. I'm going to force the RAF to change all the rules to let me back in a fighter plane. And I think that there is an element of these people who are just extremely difficult and like a lot of heroes are not nice people. Like Otto Skorzeny definitely for example, did not deserve to swing at Nuremberg. He was definitely An asshole, though.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's Uh, the thing. That's the thing, right? History needs assholes, I guess.
1: Mm. Well, this is by some way um, our sweariest podcast. Willard, I am going to invite you to tell us your brilliant story.
2: Okay. So, this once again features a not perfect individual as its central character. And its central character is a man called Jeffrey Spicer Simpson, Lieutenant Commander Jeffrey Spicer Simpson. And this happens during the First World War. And Spicer Simpson has a very bad start to his First World War, because what happens is he's he's in command of a destroyer uh, in the Royal Navy. And he is asked to uh, sort of look after a fairly small port uh, with his small destroyer. And he uh, takes time off from being in command of this destroyer to go to a local hotel to entertain some local dignitaries. And he insists that under naval regulations, he's fine to do this because he can still see his ship through the window. And therefore he is watching through the window, eating his his Sunday lunch when a German U-boat torpedoes his destroyer and it sinks without him on board. And he gets into quite a lot of trouble for this. And he is... (laughs) He is effectively sort of posted to a department of the Admiralty where nobody cares about him and he is not going to have a good war effectively. Everyone else gets to go out to the North Sea and stand in the salt and the rain looking for the looking for the high seas fleet, but he is sent to the colonial department of the Royal Navy, which is not going to be doing anything during World War One or so everybody thinks. However, he does not take this line down, and he decides he had. What happens is apparently so. Essentially, my sources for this are there's a wonderful book by Giles Foden called Mimi and Tutu Go Forth. It will you'll find out why it's called Mimi and Tutu Go Forth soon, which tr- recounts My sir Simpson's background. But there's lots of other sources you can look at, but that's the best one, the most easily available one. If you want to read more on it or fact check me, because I'm bound to get a few things wrong here, but um. Essentially, a big game hunter comes to him, and he, this big game hunter tells Spicer Simpson about this incredible danger to British and Belgian colonies in Tanzania, or Tanganyika as it was then, and that is, the big game hunter has discovered that the Germans have effectively ikea a battleship to to East Africa. So essentially the Germans, obviously Lake Tanganyika is an enormous lake. It's one of the largest bodies of water in the world. and you, But it's hundreds of miles from the seas so you can't get a ship there. So what the Germans did to secretly breaking colonial treaties to get a ship there was they sent it nut by nut and bolt by bolt through the post. And slowly over <laughs> about 10 years, they constructed a... Through
1: the post. <laughs> through
0: it's arm, like the Sears and Roebuck like, of like, World War I. Like one. one of those
2: magazines. Absolutely. The oh, front, the and in a book of World War One. <laughs> Yeah. So what they did, and they, this was a total secret before World War One, but in secret they basically had all these parts, and if it kicked off in Africa, they were going to be able to assemble this battleship and put it on the lake. This was the plan. And when I say a battleship, I'm being I'm being slightly hyperbolic. It's like a it's like a fifteen hundred <laughs> ton steamer. So it's it's not a real battleship in the sense of you know sort of your kind of Iowa in, or whatever. Enough but to pretty powerful lake.
0: on that lake though.
2: In, enough the, to dominate the lake. Absolutely. In the context of that situation it is by far and away the most powerful ship on the lake so this big game hunter comes and tells him that this is happening and sure enough the germans after a period of several months build the battleship you know presumably the instructions are quite well laid out i assume that they're left with like 15 bits <laughs> left over and they're like oh that's probably not important oh always and
1: an and an Allen key absolutely <laughs>
2: So with a kit ikea battleship they put it onto the lake and they some you know, they sail around the lake destroying all of the belgian bases sinking all of the belgian tax base and effectively because they control not only the lake but also the traffic across the lake in this sort of trackless and totally undeveloped part of africa they effectively control all of the highways and effectively mm. won everything and take control of the whole of the heart of africa and nobody can do anything about it or so the germans think mm. however they have reckoned with without Spicer Simpson and his tiny budget at the Admiralty. So Spicer Simpson, what he does is he convinces the higher-ups at the Admiralty that because the Germans have floated a ship on Lake Tanganyika, then the Royal Navy has an not merely, uh, they don't really have a need, but they have a legal obligation to actually put ships on the lake and go and fight them. But unfortunately, the British don't have time to Ikea the ship there, and the budget is very low. So what he gets is two torpedo boats, which he wants to call Dog and Cat, but he's not allowed to by the Admiralty, so he has to come up with a different name. So he calls them Mimi and Tutu. Uh,
1: um, that's Mimi and Tutu, okay, okay. Yeah, that's
2: Mimi and Tutu. With which the of course torpedoes. mean... Dog and cat in French. Yeah, or I, I believe it's woof and meow in French. I think is <laughs> uh, so. It's a it's a sort of a play on. It's a sort of play on their sort of really cool dog and cat. But you had to sort of slip it under the under the door with the with the requisition form anyway so he has he gets these two torpedo boats then he has to assemble a crew to crew them and he puts together this absolutely bonkers group of people literally by like he ends up with like two rugby players because he finds them in a pub and they're just <laughs> great chaps you know so he gets this incredible group of people like his chief engineer <laughs> is, is that
0: impress Man, alex no, it is not. <laughs> it's
2: not impressive. When he meets two London Scottish um, rugby players in a pub and convinces them to go on an adventure. That's not impressive.
1: Convinces. That's they didn't make them that's exactly. The difference, it was a yeah. throwback we but they, so he
2: he obviously convinces these, you know, this group of people, about probably about 40 or 50 people to go. Uh, on this trip and the 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 plan is and I don't think this is a particularly good plan and I think everyone at the Admiralty just assumed that they'd get on a boat and they'd never see them ever again was they're going to sail the torpedo they're going to put the torpedo ships on a cargo ship the torpedo boats they're going to sail them to Cape Town now I don't know how good your geography is but you'll note that Cape Town is approximately a continent away from Tanzania so the plan is they'll get them off the ship in Cape Town
1: They'll We've put, been them. there together, haven't we, Willard? We'll we have to been there together. together yes. yes. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Many <laughs> Sorry, years. Ago. Go on, go Table Mountain. It's
2: nice. I've got top recommendations. Yeah. So then they'll get the railway to the to to effectively the north of South Africa, and then they'll take the torpedo boats off the train. Mm-hmm. They are then at, at that point on the railway, um, which is the you know the sort of great Cape to Cairo line that Cecil Rhodes had been intending to build that was never completed. They are, I think, approximately four or 500 miles through the jungle. This to is Lake nuts. <laughs> so they, they get off, they get to the end of the railway line, and they've also got two traction engines. They've bought, apparently, for a very good price in South Africa. <laughs> well, you,
0: I'm dragging a boat through the jungle. How, how, how they, many buyers are there for traction engines in that location? I mean... Uh,
2: I don't sellers market
0: mate sellers Uh, market
2: absolutely. So they buy the traction engines, they take them, and then they pull these two torpedo boats five hundred miles through untracked, unexplored wilderness. They have to climb mountains, they have to cross uh, plateaus, they have to kill lions, they have to fight off hippos. They have a, they have a, they are incredibly lucky in the sense that the, the doctor is a world renowned authority on tropical medicine. And I think the most incredible part of this story is the fact that they do that 500 mile journey and bearing in mind, you know, people like Lodnetto Vorbeck who was, who was no slouch about, um, you know, sort of losing men. You know, was looked after his men very well, but still lost, you know, sort of 20 to 30 sure. of people through sickness. They didn't lose a single man to illness. going Lard, let me, let, me
0: let me just interrupt this amazing story real quick to tease our, our listeners with the future guest the great historian of the flu pandemic in the United States, uh, John Barry, who writes that a goal of a lot of American medical experts at the time was to make World War I the first war in history that fewer people were lost from disease than from combat. And it sounds to me like you're and saying f- these f- guys achieved that in this operation. this operation. In this operation, yes, but failed overall. Yeah, yes. yeah. Sorry, go, go.
2: So they are. So essentially, yeah, they they get through the jungle. They they and this. I think this ranks with like Shackleton's mission, mm-hmm. the pole. They get through the jungle. They get the boats intact. The, the The range that they're going on is the journey they're going on is so difficult. They have to build hundred and fifty bridges to get to the lake right and and many of those bridges at least 70 or 80 of these bridges were still in use in like 2012 when i last looked closely at this for television i looked into recreating this journey but basically insurance companies just like screamed in horror at the idea of it <laughs> but essentially yes so they, they managed to get the torpedo boats to the lake they get them on the lake and then they the Germans have a small fleet of ships. They've captured lots of the Belgian ships and they start picking the German ships off one by one. And then oh, they have and they do boarding actions. They, you know, on Christmas, on Boxing Day, one day a German ship hoves into sight and they leap into the torpedo boat and and you know Spicer Simpson on a public
0: holiday. That yeah, way. The
2: <laughs> they, they I just I just, I just I just I
0: I just want our executive producer and Hollywood bigwig Ivan Williams to recognize that this is the next big Mark Wahlberg movie and Alex this and and I have me. the rights to it. We have the right to this one. Carry Absolutely, on with
2: Absolutely, yeah. So effectively, they, they take all the small boats. Uh, they take all the small boats that the Germans have been using to kind of control the lake and they then have a fleet. They have a fleet of about five or six ships and, you know, the, the the conflict between them and the German battleships, the Graf von Gotzen, this mm. incredible showdown is ready to happen. But the Germans decide that effectively they can't beat five or six ships. So what they do is they scuttle the Graf von Gotzen rather than fight <laughs> the And so you end up in a situation where Spicer Simpson Manages to not only retake the the lake, but retake the, the whole heart of Africa. So, in terms of territory captured, he captures more. Single most
1: significant thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know, Alex. Else. This
0: the, I don't know, Alex. This might <laughs> eclipse your story of the most complete defeat. But, yeah. you know, awesome. I'm not ridiculous. sure. There's zero casualties, but this is
1: this is superb. Felicia thought, add, sorry." they on.
2: don't lose. They don't, so so in in sinking the battleship, in getting there with the torpedo boots, they don't lose a single man doing it.
1: Oh. And
2: uh, yeah, you know, he oh, that's just, pretty amazing. Okay, he returns to Britain a hero. Um, he made the very sensible decision to take a tabloid journalist with him from the Daily Mirror, who obviously writes this up in glowing terms. And uh, yeah, he returns to Britain a hero, and uh, you know, and and there are lots of accounts of the voyage essentially and there are sort of multiple competing accounts of what happened but those are the sort of key facts and and obviously Spicer simpson is is you know he's a buffoon he is uh, he's a, a, a larger than life character and i think as i said about you know beta, like the truth is to even attempt something like that
0: right. you have to have. you've got to have a bit of a screw loose
2: yeah the, the only character
0: if only Michael Caine were thirty years younger. <laughs> Question: well, I
1: I told, of course, in the book that the story of the uh, Calcutta Light Horse, which was you know, who, who who took on German ships in the neutral port of Goa, and they were led by some special operations executive old buffers. In this, the, they were all old buffers as well, and they
0: must have had several screws loose to do it. But, <laughs> well, but
1: when it comes off, isn't it a thing of beauty? Yeah. Our it's listeners are going to have story. to
0: wait. Our listeners will have to wait for that story, Alex. Uh, but yeah. to, to to your point about. It's crazy right up until it's not. Am I am I incorrect in my research? And by research I mean five minutes of searching Wikipedia, that up until a certain point this whole operation was known as Simpson Circus. And at what yes. point did that turn?
2: Um, well, I think that the truth about it is, is 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 so effectively it gets that nickname from Rhodesian troops who are deployed alongside them. You think that the whole thing is absolutely ridiculous. And they they like, they mock a lot of the things that so. If, for all sorts of like tropical medicine reasons, they do things like they wear sun cream and they have like all sorts of insect repellent on them. So they're covered in this like World War One like zinc-based sun cream. So they're all covered in kind of like white face paint all the time. So they're like- actually camouflage yeah well the reason they're known as simpson circus is because basically all the medical precautions
1: they they look like clowns it made them look ridiculous Mm -hmm.
2: but the reason that they were doing it was Uh. of course because the the tropical medicine doctor was like no we have to do this so i think you know the it and also they you know they they were very much by the time they got to the lake they were very much kind of like they'd been in the jungle for more than a year that's the other thing about this this took
1: oh my god that this it it took over a year
2: well they had to build 150 bridges i mean like you know like each bridge (laughs) like they're they're taking two or three days to Build a bridge. I mean, that's pretty good going, you know. But
1: but yeah, I I suppose. Yeah,
2: I've never built a bridge. Yeah, fair enough. Ragged by the time they get there as well. So, for example, Spicer Simpson goes into action when he captures the German ship and leads the boarding action. He he goes into action wearing only a skirt and nothing else. He's just got his cutlass because all Royal Naval officers in World War uh, World War One were issued with cutlasses. What the average naval officer in World War One, who of course is engaging with his opponent uh... from fourteen thousand yards away with a fourteen-inch gun, needs with a with a cutlass is not entirely clear. But uh, yeah, Spicer <laughs> Simpson makes good use of it. But yeah, no. So they are they are like. Bizarre bizarre looking because they have been you know they've gone native in many ways and and in terms of going native one of the things we're talking about long um von leto vorbeck and his troops kind of you know dedication to him spicer simpson ends up being worshipped as a god by the local, by the <laughs> local <Of course>. <laughs>
1: okay you, you're pulling your legs no, no, Absolutely.
2: The local the local people who are known as the hollow <laughs> hollow like put up statues, and you, they have these statues of this, like, like, fat-bellied white man in a skirt, and this... Oh, there's hope for me yet!
0: <laughs> I mean, see, who doesn't this, have that?
2: This is an icon of Spicer Simpson, because his victory was so complete over the Germans, and the Germans that are like... The Germans bad, and the Belgians bad. had dominated the lake, and he suddenly, suddenly came from nowhere and defeated them all, and so the hollow hollow had, had been brutally treated by both the Belgians and the Germans, and Spicer Simpson was quite nice in comparison.
1: He just yes, he liberated on them. them. So, know you, you know what you know what, Brian. I am gonna concede defeat.
0: This is a more complete victory <laughs> it does than seem, my story. The most complete victory. It does seem. It's the most most complete victory. <laughs> yes, well, it's, it's like we don't have to. We don't have to pick one. But uh, so, Willard, are you saying if our listeners went to what used to be like, the Belgian like tango today? they would find a statue of this fat white guy in a you skirt can
2: find them yeah yeah so so in foden's book he talks about going to a hollow hollow village and meeting an old man because hollow hollow have largely died out but um he he, go, he talks about meeting an old man he takes him and shows him one of these idols so they still are out there but one of the other things that's incredible is although i did this on my honeymoon actually which sort of demonstrates the fact that any holiday (laughs) can be used as an excuse to visit world war one battlefield um but essentially the german battleship is scuttled but it remains the only giant ship on the lake and therefore in the 1920s an irish engineer hits on the brilliant business idea of i'll pump it out and fix it and then i'll have a transport monopoly on the lake and the ship Formerly the Graf von Gotzen, now known as the Merchant Vessel Liemba, is still plying the lake, and you can. get, get out. It. What, it,
0: You mean today? Today,
2: yeah, you can still ride.
0: I, I read can on. You, it can you day. send us a picture yeah. that we can put in our show notes? Yeah, that'd be that's amazing.
2: But it's still going. You can still ride on the Liemba, uh, and and it is a wonderful way to see. It is a wonderful way to see the uh, to see Lake Tanganyika. There's no better way to see it.
1: This By like definition, there cannot be. <laughs> I, th- I think we're going to have to have a hidden history FBI field trip, and Willard, you will, and you, you and, and uh, Mrs. Willard, uh, Mrs. Fox and top will of course be invited. Yeah, guest tour guides. Willard, it has been absolutely great. Uh, thank you so much. I think it's been a super episode. I never think
0: we've sworn a lot. I've I've been crying with laughter a couple of times. Well, Art. um Fantastic. Where, where can our, where can our listeners find your work in North America? Cause I've had a little bit of a hard time with that. Uh,
2: so I think the best thing, the most recent thing I've done. And um, so I moved from doing television to doing audio uh, fairly recently. Uh, and the best place they can go to find my stuff is on um if you go onto Apple Podcasts and you look for, uh, there's a BBC series we do called Sideways, which I think a lot of listeners to this show will really love. Um, mm-hmm. Essentially, every week we take on, we look at sort of big ideas uh, in history and kind of reveal that, you know, whether they're true or false and so on. It's hosted by a wonderful academic called um, Matthew Syed so that's very that's very oh he's oh he's
1: super black black box thinking yeah absolutely, super, absolutely so that's super. a really
2: great show that um that i'm heavily involved with and another one that came out it was world number one podcast over christmas uh a podcast called harsh reality which is about the most unethical reality show ever made which obviously is quite <laughs> played um, it's going
0: some yeah yeah and yeah. that
2: came out over christmas as it was world number one um and yeah that is a great bit of my work that you can you can listeners can track down
0: see you next time cheers Thank you for listening
1: to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time.
0: We thank our gifted producers, Jeremy Corr and Kate Cruz, and our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle. Cheers.